0: Well, some of you have uh, heard of the Grammy award winning band 21 Pilots, and now we all have. Uh, at least two of you, I don't know if they're here this morning, have seen 21 Pilots in concert. I think Tyler Joseph and Josh Dunn profess to be Christians. Uh, their, song presents, their songs present uh, Christian themes, and their seven time platinum global hit song, Heathens, is fascinating. A very thought-provoking, it seems the song has various layers of meaning, but whatever 21 Pilots is intending to say by the song, heathens, seems fitting for the church. One line goes like this, and listen carefully, just because we check the guns at the door doesn't mean our brains will change from hand grenades. You're loving on the psychopath sitting next to you. You're loving on the murderer sitting next to you. You'll think, how'd I get here sitting next to you? Checking the guns at the door and preventing violence is certainly good, but it doesn't change the hand grenade of the brain. The internal problem of evil, the human heart is explosive. So abstaining from murder is good self-control, but it's not enough because murder explodes in the heart. Who will disarm the hand grenade of the inner man? When we gather in worship with believers, we might forget that we're loving on psychopaths and murderers sitting next to us in the pews, and we're one of them. And if we can't bring ourselves to admit that we too are a psychopath and murderer, we have yet to understand God's law, particularly the sixth commandment. We have yet to understand our own radical sinfulness and the gospel of imputed righteousness. You are a murderer. I am a murderer. We are sitting in a room full of murderers convicted in the courtroom of God's holy justice. And murder seems to be the commandment that people use to justify themselves. It's, it's like the cry of the self-righteous has become, well, it's not like I murdered anybody. A statement which shows complete ignorance about what murder truly is. Most people don't seem to rec- recognize that before murder is in the hands, it's in the heart, in the form of irritation, impatience, anger, Hatred, bitterness, resentment, and the like, all of which are enough to condemn someone before God. It's likely, likely, that none of you here today have actually murdered someone with your hands, but we have at least with our hearts and our words. Brothers and sisters, do you measure your righteousness by all the crimes you haven't committed? Or do you measure yourself as God's law does? In our text today, Jesus refutes a common self-justifying interpretation of the sixth commandment and gives the conclusive interpretation of the sixth commandment. Jesus helped his disciples understand the law, and brothers and sisters, if we listen to him, he will help us understand it too, which should greatly humble us and fill us with gratitude for the grace of Christ. So let's begin here. We must not justify ourselves by reducing obedience to outward behavior. We must not justify ourselves by reducing obedience to outward behavior. The scribes and the Pharisees misinterpreted the Ten Commandments for many years. They reduced God's commandments to external behavior. Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law and set the record straight that true law-keeping begins in the heart. Jesus said, verse 21, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. The disciples listening to Jesus had heard the law explained before, but not correctly. Jesus did not say, you have read. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said to those of old. So his disciples listening to him had heard the scribes and Pharisees teach what they thought the law said to those of old, not actually what the law said to those of old. Jesus gave a a big dose of reality. Calvin said, But as the law had been corrupted by false expositions and turned to a profane meaning, Christ vindicates it against such corruptions and points out its true meaning, from which the Jews had departed. End of quote. Jesus was clearing away the doctrinal fog. Now, the sixth commandment it does say, "You shall not murder." But it does not say, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now, that's certainly true, and and the, and the Old Testament does teach that, but here's what the religious leaders were doing. They were using these two truths, merging these two truths to draw this legalistic conclusion. Murderers will be judged by God. We are obedient and righteous because we have not physically murdered anyone. Now, what's wrong with that kind of thinking? The problem with that thinking is that it misses the true meaning of the sixth commandment. It it ignores the heart of God's law, defines righteousness by external obedience, behavior, and disregards the sinfulness of the heart. The scribes and Pharisees prided themselves on outward religious behavior, which verse 20 shows is insufficient for eternal life. The scribes and Pharisees define righteousness as checking boxes on lists of outward behaviors. Do this, don't do that, then you are righteous. Friends, the human heart is very good at trying to, justifying, trying to justify itself by reducing obedience to outward behavior and ignoring the wild and unbridled sin in the heart. James Boyce said, a man can do the worst possible things that a person can do in this life. Kill, cheat, steal, commit adultery, and so on. And when he is brought face to face with his actions, he will find a dozen reasons why they were not false at all or why it was necessary for him to commit these acts. End of quote. Now, godly outward behavior is essential, but it can easily become a self-justifying distraction from confronting sin in the heart and actually repenting. Secondly, flee anger, for murder is in the heart before it is in the hands. Flee murder. I'm sorry, we'll do that too. Flee anger, for murder is in the heart before it is in the hands. In verse 21, Jesus said, you have heard that it was said to those of old. So he first identified the common misinterpretation. Then he said, but I say to you. Jesus positioned himself as the authoritative and conclusive interpreter of the law and prophets. He was essentially saying, listen to me. Listen to me. I will tell you what the law actually means, what it actually says. And Jesus said, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus took his disciples past outward behavior into the heart where murder rises in the form of anger, hatred, resentment, and bitterness. And stabs, but not with knives, not with swords, with malicious words. Jesus made it clear, simply get angry with your brother, or we could say neighbor, and you're liable to judgment. Simply insult your brother and you're liable to the council, another way of saying judgment. Simply call your brother a fool and you're liable to eternal hell or judgment. Jesus uses three scenarios here to draw one conclusion. Anger in the heart and on the lips is worthy of God's judgment. John Calvin rightly concluded about verse 22, Christ assigns three degrees of condemnation besides the violence of the hands, which implies that this precept of the law restrains not only the hands, but all affections that are opposed to brotherly love. Those who shall only be angry with their brethren or treat them with haughty disdain or injure them by any reproach are murderers. End of quote. You don't need blood on your hands to be a murderer. I like how William Hendrickson translated verse 22 But I say to you that even anyone who is angry with his brother deserves to be punished with death. And whoever says to his brother, you blockhead, deserves to be condemned to death by the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you idiot, deserves to be cast into the hell of fire. Oh, the unattainable righteousness which the law demands. I think the Heidelberg Catechism explains well what Jesus meant here. Heidelberg 105 asks, what does God require in the Sixth Commandment? I think you guys did this in, uh, in the class this morning. For those of you who were here, 105, what does God require in the Sixth Commandment? And it answers, I am not to dishonor, hate, injure, or kill my neighbor by thoughts, words, or gestures and much less by deeds whether personally or through another. Rather, I am to put away all desire of revenge. Moreover, I am not to harm or recklessly endanger myself. Therefore also the government bears the sword to prevent murder. Heidelberg 106 advances the thought by asking, but does this commandment speak only of killing? It then answers, By forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, such as envy, hatred, anger, and desire of revenge, and that he regards all these as murder. Okay. So you didn't slap them in the face when they had it coming. But did you want to? They were being pig-headed, and you held your tongue. But did you want to curse them out? You did well by not taking revenge. But did you want to take revenge? Was there any part of you at all that desired the other person's dishonor or harm in any slight way? When Lee Harvey Oswald, Charles Manson... Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, and the Menendez brothers did their horrific acts of violence. Their hands followed their hearts. And when you and I say those sarcastic and biting words with the perfect timing, when we slam the drawer or we throw the book, when we storm out of the room or we give someone the silent treatment, our actions reveal the murderous intentions of our hearts. Our desires alone incriminate us. Folks, you don't need to pull the trigger to be guilty of murder. You simply need to get angry. That irritable impulse is murder. That infuriating itch is murder. That ill-tempered intention is murder. Someone veers in front of you, causing you to swerve the car onto there. And, And just like that, out of your mouth, you idiot, and there it is. Murder in your heart. Now let me ask you this. Can you feel your desperate need of Christ and redeeming grace? How does anyone live that way? You need him. I need him. Any thought or intention or feeling or gesture opposed to brotherly love is murderous and deserves eternal hell. Look around you. You're you're in a room full of psychopaths and murderers. And you're one of them. Your heart is a hand grenade. Friends, I cannot count the amount of times in my life that I have been angry with others, including the people that I love the most. My words, my body language... And my tone are our guns raising down even those closest to me. Instead of reducing the sixth commandment to outward behavior, let's allow the law to do what the law is supposed to do. Expose us. Put out there our desperate need of redeeming grace every day. We need Christ, and the law explains that to us. It explains that we need to be reformed. And that he needs to work grace in us. Folks, the sixth commandment is impossible. It's impossible. You need to feel the weight of it. You need to feel it crushing down on you that you cannot live up to what God demands of you. Feel your need of a rescuer. Feel your need of a redeemer feel the need of a reformer to show up and to reform you to reform your heart there is one reason why in uncontrollable rage you didn't run that guy off the road or curse out your coworker or beat your child or lunge across the table at that exasperating relative at thanksgiving one reason and one reason alone sovereign grace do not be deceived The law has spoken. You are ferocious to the bone. James Boyce said Do we commit murder? Yes, by this definition, we lose our temper, we harbor grudges, we gossip, we kill by neglect, spite, and jealousy, and we would learn that we actually do worse things than these if only we could see our hearts as God is able to see them. It is no accident that even in our own speech such things sometimes are termed character assassination or that we speak of destroying a person by words. This is literally true and we do it." End of quote. Brothers and sisters, how is the hand grenade of your heart going to be disarmed? And that question leads us right to the gospel where Jesus Christ died by crucifixion in our place to rescue us from God's righteous judgment, to free us from the bondage and shackles of sin, to replace our sinful urges and impulses with godly urges and godly impulses. It is the power of the cross which disarms the hand grenade inside of us. It is the power of the Spirit which mobilizes us to peace and to love and to patience and to kindness. To walk with Christ is to be transformed from a murderer into a worshiper of God. The only way you can truly say, I'm a lover, not a fighter, is sovereign grace. The sixth commandment is not simply about what we should not desire or not do. I think a lot of people, that's what they hear, and they miss the positive thing that is implicit in the commands of of what we're called to do on the positive side. It's about what we should desire and what we should do. So Heidelberg 107 asks, is it enough then that we do not kill our neighbor in any such way? And it answers no, as in no, that's not enough. When God condemns envy, it says, continuing, hatred and anger, he commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to show patience, peace, Gentleness, mercy, and friendliness toward him to protect him from harm as much as we can and to do good even to our enemies. You see, it's not enough to put off anger, we have to also put on love. Couldn't we summarize you shall not murder like this? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Isn't that it? Brothers and sisters, we must walk with Christ away from anger. Murder may may never reach our hands. Praise God, we thank Him for that grace. But if irritation and impatience and anger and hatred and bitterness and resentment and the like are not dying daily in our hearts, we are facing the gateway of hell. There is only one who can purge murder from our hearts. His name is Jesus Christ. And His effectual grace is powerful enough to transform the angriest of hearts through the instrument of faith. Effectual grace given through the instrument of faith alone purges anger from the heart. Our only hope for radical rehabilitation is God's effectual grace worked in us by Christ who alone reforms us. Christ is the only one who replaces anger with love. Irritability with tranquility. Exasperation with patience. Smugness with sweetness. Brutality with gentleness. Resentment with forgiveness. Our only hope of transformation is union with Christ. Union with Christ, who takes nasty and vicious and hostile and cantankerous people and makes them like himself. A process that sometimes appears to be quite dramatic and and immediate. Wow, they're just entirely different since meeting Jesus. But in actuality, it takes a lifetime. God's grace working. Brothers and sisters, it is easier for us to think well of ourselves if we define righteousness as outward behavior and religious ceremony. That's easy. Boyce said this, men always find it easier to substitute the ceremonial aspects of religion for the demands of a clear conscience before God. That's good. See, if, if we just moderate the law a little bit, if we make law-keeping about external religious activity just do some good stuff, then perhaps we don't have to face the monster that is within, uh, within our own hearts. And right there is the rub for many people. They would rather keep religiously busy and feel good about themselves than take an honest look in the mirror and repent of the sin that is running wild in their heart. Let us not forget, dear brothers and sisters, that our master has told us, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross daily and follow me. Anger cannot be overcome with religious activity or behavior modification on the outside, but must be crucified daily by spirit wrought and faith fueled self denial and submission to Christ. It's a painful journey, it's hard. It's daily. you wake up to face it again and again and again and again. First, Jesus exposited the sixth commandment in verses 21 and 22. Then in verses 23 through 26, Jesus taught his disciples how to apply the truth he taught. Notice in verse 23, he says, so if you are offering your gift, he really personalized it for his disciples who had received sovereign grace through faith. They were there because they, they loved him and they were following him, and this is his first application. In other words, make it a top priority to seek reconciliation in order to alleviate anger in others. Make it a top priority to seek reconciliation In order to alleviate anger in others, he told his disciples, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. Now, I want you to picture a devout Jew in the first century in the temple before the altar about to offer up an animal sacrifice in worship to the Lord. Just before he offers the animal, a thought crosses his mind. He remembers that his neighbor has something against him because he sinned against his neighbor and provoked anger. He is the wrongdoer. Well, what should he do in that moment? First, reconciliation. Reconciliation. Second, worship. The sequence is important. To worship God while ignoring offenses against others and refusing to reconcile is a charade. God sees reconciliation as a matter of first importance, excuse me, for his children. The the order of the imperatives Jesus gave his disciples is important. First, leave the gift at the altar. Second, go to your brother. Third, Try to make, as much as it's possible with you, try to make peace with your brother whom you've offended and forth. Return then and offer your sacrifice of worship. Now, we have to keep in mind that Jesus preached this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, in the Old Covenant dispensation when altars and sacrifices were still relevant. There are no more altars, there are no more animal sacrifices today, but see the principle is the same. Perhaps we could apply it today like this: before coming to church, seek out reconciliation with your brother whom you've offended. Then go to church and worship. I, I think it's it's simply living out what Paul said in Romans 12 18, if possible. And I think we need to hear this loud and clear because it clarifies a lot. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You will sometimes perhaps seek reconciliation and it just won't be there. They won't want anything to do with you. That's not on you. That's on them. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, if you're like me, some of you I know are, and you have this kind of personality where you get uber sensitive about stuff. And then all of a sudden, this stuff just seems so heavy and you will never get out of confessing. You will spend your life confessing, going around to this person and that person, saying, you remember that time when I didn't know? Well, I'm really sorry, will you forgive me? And we spent i so sensitive, and I want to just speak to those of you, if you identify with what I'm saying. We need to be very careful how we think about this. A hypersensitive conscience is not a good thing. It's not a good thing. It will take so much joy from you, speaking from personal experience. But a sensitive spirit-led conscience is a godly thing. Jesus wants us to live out the law of love, and if we have offended someone, to go and to make it right. That we need to do. The command is not meant to make you sit around anxiously biting your nails, worrying about every little thing that you may have done wrong in fear that your worship to God is in vain and he won't accept you. That's not what's intended here. Don't hear that. You have to be careful how you hear. That's not it. Jesus' teaching is not meant to create anxiety or oppress someone's sensitive soul, but instead to promote freedom of conscience and to promote harmonious and loving relationships. That's what he's getting after. Calvin said it like this, for the words of Christ mean nothing more than this, that it is a false and empty profession of worshiping God which is made by those who, after acting unjustly towards their brethren, treat them with haughty disdain. I think we need to stay simple and understand if we're wrong, make it right. Go. We don't have to invent problems. We have enough problems, real ones. God doesn't want you proudly ignoring your offenses against others. To ignore known offenses against a brother or to be indifferent to the grief or sadness of others is unloving and it is ungodly. To to seek reconciliation is to love God and to love others. Going to the person and trying to make peace is an act of love and selflessness If they hate you, reject you, refuse to forgive you, you at least have done your part to seek reconciliation out of love for God and out of love for that person, your neighbor. And and then your conscience can be clear. Humility and contrition go a long way in alleviating anger in others. Now, how many relationships would heal and thrive if people humbled themselves, went, and sought sincere reconciliation out of love for God and neighbor. How many things would just change? How different our marriages would be, our families, our churches, our communities. Imagine yourself sitting in church in a few rows in front of someone that you know you've offended. Hostility is in the air, you feel as if their gaze is boring a hole into the back of your head, you're, you're polite when necessary, but you really don't even want to see the person because of the rift that you mostly created. You know that going to the person is the right thing to do, but see, it would be so painful, it would be awkward, it would be humbling, maybe even embarrassing, and so there you sit, worshiping God, praising your Lord who has forgiven you incalculable sins, and your pride prevents you from moving towards your brother. Your act of worship, it's good, it's good, but it's out of order. As you worship, your immobility is likely prolonging the battle with anger in your brother. You're promoting it by your inactivity. In the interest of the purity of worship, in the interest of love for God, and in the interest of love for your brother, will you get up and go to your brother and make it right? Zacchaeus, he's a picture of true repentance. He told Jesus, if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. He, he was ready to move towards the people that he had offended and make restitution. When, when one receives forgiveness from God, they seek forgiveness from those that they offend. They are humble because grace humbles them. See, the sixth commandment is not simply about you not getting angry or hating, but about you loving others and trying to prevent their anger. There are few things more aggravating than someone who is clearly in the wrong and can't seem to utter the words, I'm sorry, I failed you. I sinned against you and I'm deeply sorry. Will you forgive me? Is there anything I can do for you? I am committed to change by God's grace. Sometimes it's like everyone else hears this air raid siren of guilt emitting from the person, but they're plugging the ears saying, la, 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 la. They just don't want to hear it. That arrogance excites anger in other people. Contrition often diffuses anger. Just brings it down. Appreciate you saying something, thanks a lot, That, that means a lot, that did hurt, and I forgive you. As Christians, we are poor in spirit. We mourn our sin. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. Therefore, because of Christ, we can humble ourselves and seek reconciliation. The love of Christ compels us to seek reconciliation. What does it say about our understanding of the law and gospel if we do not seek reconciliation? It's saying we just have no clue what's going on in the Christian faith. More than anyone else, As the Heidelberg puts it, believers understand that daily they increase their debt. And that even their best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. And we have the gospel which emboldens our humility. Gratitude for God's grace moves us towards our brothers to make peace and to build relational harmony and joy Alleviating opportunities for others to be angry should be top on our priority list. I'm not gonna push you, brother, I'm not gonna push you, sister. So that you would get angry. I don't want to do that to you, I want to love you. That's that's the idea. Is that your top priority? Loving your brothers and sisters in a way that does not provoke them to anger. Is that your priority in your marriage? Is that your priority with your children? Is that your priority with your coworkers? What if you had to snap in half and take all kinds of terrible stuff just in order to maybe prevent someone from getting angry? Would you do it? This is hard. Is anyone else uncomfortable with this stuff? I mean, this is hard to do. It's impossible. You won't do it without the Spirit. And that's why we see so many people just enraged. They have no spirit, the Holy Spirit's not in them. They don't have it. What do we expect them to do but to get really ticked off at everything? Drive a car and you know exactly what I'm saying. And brothers and sisters, let us also seek reconciliation quickly. Here's the second application. Seek reconciliation quickly in order to avoid judgment. He says, come to terms with your accuser. While you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Okay, someone is accusing you. Verse 26 seems to suggest guilt, that a payment be made, and as you head on your way or even on the way to court with your accuser, make it right then before it gets to the court. Don't wait until you're sued and dragged before the judge. Recognize your culpability. This takes humility. Admit it, confess it, and seek to make restitution before the judge hauls you off to jail. Many evils have been compounded because of self-righteousness, pride, ungodly delay in reconciliation and restitution. Isn't, Isn't it interesting As you watch the media and all that stuff and and encounter in your life, isn't it interesting that sincerity of someone's confession is often questioned when someone repents after they're found out. There's just something little there that's like, but would they really have done us if they didn't get found out? But seems like a different situation. It seems much more authentic and credible when someone actually confesses before they're found out and repents before they're found out. Doesn't that kind of just slightly change? Doesn't mean the other person was... It's just interesting how we think about that. Speed is important when it comes to seeking reconciliation. Maybe not working out reconciliation, but at least seeking it. Quick. I think Jesus was speaking here of earthly relationships. I don't want to make it seem like that wasn't it. I think it's earthly relationships here, but the principle applies to God as well. We must be reconciled to God quickly quickly, if we don't come to terms with God by coming to Jesus Christ for forgiveness and for cleansing, which he freely offers, God will not show us mercy. He will pour out the full extent of his just fury and condemnation on everyone who is obstinate in their sin. Let us seek reconciliation with God and let us seek reconciliation with our fellow man and let it do so quickly. Verse 26 emphasizes the severity of judgment. Every penny or quadrante, the smallest and least valuable Roman coin worth one sixty-fourth of a day's wage of, common, of a common worker will be paid before release. The severity of judgment acts as a motivator for the haste of seeking reconciliation to, to delay. It might not ultimately end in God's eternal judgment, but brothers and sisters, in our culture and in the world that we live in, it may result in many painful earthly consequences to delay seeking reconciliation. Seek reconciliation quickly before things get out of hand. So let, let's end by asking this. How do we flee Anger and seek reconciliation. What does that look like? And I think it starts with Psalm 2, verse 12, which says, Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So humble yourself, this is where it all begins, humble yourself and kiss the feet of Jesus lest he be angry and you perish beneath his righteous indignation. Take refuge in the king and his glorious kingdom of peace. I think it starts with recognizing your spiritual poverty, Mourning your sin, being meek and hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Anger will not conquer those, will not overcome those, will not master those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and turn to Jesus to receive it. The key to eradicating all irritation and impatience and anger and hatred and bitterness and resentment and the like is God's grace given you through faith in Christ. It's quite simple, actually. God uses his word, his sacraments, and prayer to build up your faith in order for you to put anger to death in you and bring love to life. Don't deny his ordinary means of grace through which he serves you in this way. Receive God's ordinary means of grace with faith and allow him to put anger to death. As beneficiaries of God's mercy and God's grace, they belong to us, dear brothers and sisters, as Paul says in Galatians 5.16, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Paul labeled enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions works of the flesh, works of the flesh, Walking by the Spirit quenches the fire of anger. If you are not daily putting anger to death by the Spirit, heed Paul's warning that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is serious. Unrestrained anger in the heart leads straight to hell. Don't be deceived. That's where this story ends, if not for the grace and mercy of God. Working love in your heart because he chose you and saved you and redeemed you. But Paul gives hope for saints struggling with anger. So if you're like, This is me, Pastor, I'm an angry mess. All right? We all struggle with this. Here's the hope for you, you angry mess. Here's the hope. He said in verse 24 that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Brothers and sisters, Christ has set you free from anger. You're not in bondage to this. If you're in Christ, it is no longer a shackle that you wear. They're not on your hands. In your freedom, crucify your anger daily by the Spirit and live free. Live free. As you seek refuge in Christ alone, your God will replace anger with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, which he will produce in you by his powerful spirit. This is why around here we say things like we're desperate for Christ. Because we are. We need him to do this. Following Jesus is a matter of daily putting off the old, angry, and murderous you. Daily crucifying that old, angry, and murderous you and daily putting on Christ and daily putting on the new and patient and loving you which is being daily renewed in knowledge after the image of Christ and daily walking by the Spirit in love. Barry York said this, the law awakens sin so we can address it in Christ. The law awakens sin so we can address it in Christ. The law is God's grace because he crushes us beneath his holy requirements. We look and say, I can't possibly. I'm completely undone. And the gospel is God's grace because he gives us Christ who has done it all and he comforts us in the righteousness of Christ that he imputes to you and counts as if it's yours. The law rightfully convicts and condemns us so that Christ can compassionately redeem and comfort us. Let the law do what it does best. Let the gospel do what it does best. How do we flee anger and seek reconciliation? And I think Colossians three twelve through 17 tell us how to do it in clear, unmistakable terms, and it all hinges on being God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. When you are are his and you belong to him and you're beloved and and you're holy and you're set apart. So all of this hinges on union with Christ. I'll end with this application. It tells us exactly how to apply the sixth commandment and every commandment for that matter. Listen closely. Put on then... giving thanks to God the Father through him.